The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please Please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, I'm sad to say this is about medical privacy and medical fraud. And so, you know, we've talked about many issues of fraud on this show and privacy and healthcare privacy. And so this is a kind of a blending. And so I want to talk to you about our wonderful guest, who is Sharon Barrich, and she has worked in medicine for 30 years as a physician assistant. She received her initial training at Baylor College of Medicine, and then she did additional training in public health at UT School of Public Health, where she received her master's in public health. She's the author of more than 100 articles and has a book published entitled Practical Disciplines of a Christian Life. So you can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org and also at her website, strengtheningyourfaith.com. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Sharon. Well, thank you for the invite, Mari. Yes. So medical fraud is huge, isn't it? How prevalent really is it? Well, according to several of the different websites, it does. there's at least $100 billion a year. And unfortunately, that's a low figure right now because it increases every single solitary year as far as how much more medical fraud there is, healthcare fraud. So um, can you give us some examples of healthcare fraud? You and I were talking before the show started that there's so many different ways that people can really commit healthcare fraud. And I was telling you about uh, someone I knew that was a physician that worked for another physician professor at the University of California, and they were fudging uh, research on certain drugs to make sure that those drugs would pass the FDA when there were really terrible side effects. So that's a form of fraud. But you talk about a lot of other kinds of fraud where there's medical billing fraud, et cetera. So give us some examples. Um, Well, I mean, there is the medical billing fraud. There's the overcharges. There's the charging Medicare, Medicaid for equipment that the patient doesn't need. There is the fact that physicians were receiving kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies for using their medications. Um, There's a scenario of a physician that I know of that's now in federal prison because he was receiving kickbacks from the pharmaceutical company while the patients did not need the medications because they were already in palliative care or under hospice care, and yet he was still giving them chemotherapy at that point in time, which is totally against that policy. So as there are as many forms of healthcare fraud as there are physicians out there who are committing it. It's just it's 
it's really, really bad. It's a travesty. So can you speak? Yeah. So how is it that medical personnel get away with this fraud? Well, they partially get away with it because there's so much fraud going on that the Department of Justice and in the case of Medicaid, the state attorney general has to take care of their own individual Medicaid within their state because that's not taken care of by the federal people. Um, but there's so much healthcare fraud. It's just an overwhelming amount of healthcare fraud that the Department of Justice doesn't have enough litigators, enough prosecutors assigned to do healthcare fraud and to prosecute it. That currently, right now, they're only able to address nine cities in the whole U.S. with all of their prosecutors and prosecute those cases. And then they move on to nine other cities. And I'm still waiting for them to move on to Denver so that they will prosecute the case that I have talked to the FBI about here. And that's been, I've been waiting for three years. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So what do they start out like Los Angeles and New York? Do they take the biggest cities first? Is that what they do? Well, I seem to recall they've been working in Houston, Detroit, New York, um, Miami, L.A., and San Fran, I seem to recall. But, you know, I mean, there's fraud in, you know, a huge amount of other states out there that they haven't come to and started addressing and prosecuting and that kind of stuff. I know in the case that I know of here locally in Denver, there is an indictment out for um, this particular case that I discussed with the FBI three years ago. But the arrest warrant has not been issued because the DOJ is not in town. Well, what about the the local law enforcement? I mean, you went to the FBI, which is federal, but does the local law enforcement take uh, take that into consideration as well? And the local district attorneys, can they investigate this stuff or are they overwhelmed and they don't want to do it? Well, local cannot do anything about it because it's it's a federal charge. Okay. Um, you're basically being fraudulent with Medicare, Medicaid, well, those are state and federal programs. Right. You're also being fraudulent with private health insurance companies, and they're on a federal level. You know, they reach into numerous different states giving their health care insurance. Right. And so that's also on a federal level. So when you're talking about health care fraud, you're defrauding the individual insurance companies. You're defrauding Medicare if it's an elderly patient, senior citizen over the age of 65, and or you're defrauding the state with their state Medicaid. So all of that is governmental as opposed to local law enforcement. What about the Department of Health uh, and Human Services, like, you know, at the federal level? Do they do anything? No, this is because it's fraud. It has to go underneath the Department of Justice. Right, right. So I'm I'm just wondering how these people get away with it when they have honorable people like you working for them and, and uh, other, you know, not, you know, so, uh, pra- nurse practitioners and other people who work with them. Are they just not reporting it? They rather just stick their head in the sand? Or why do you think they're getting away with this for, uh, you know, without anybody around them or the hospitals mentioning this stuff? Well, I think part of it is the medical culture itself allows them to get away with it because 
medicine is very, very resistant to change. They are, they put a brick wall around themselves and they say, this is the way medicine is to be practiced. And they don't want anyone looking at them or questioning their chart notes or anything else. And it's like, they just want to put it underneath the table and, and, and move on. You know, I don't want to deal with that. We just, we're just going to move on. And I think part of it is just their culture and the way that they, you know, behave. Um, I think another part of it is that they just want to keep their blinders on. Mm. I know with a particular case that I had to report to the university um, because he was a faculty member, I sat down and I talked to legal and I said, you thought that you cleaned this, you know, division up because they were cleaning that division out and they were getting rid of bad you know people and all kinds of stuff that was going on and I said you cleaned it up but you only cleaned out 50% of it Mm. there's still a physician in that division which is doing healthcare fraud he's doing billing fraud and here's how Mm. he's doing it and I specifically said send somebody over there to watch him you know they can be at the end of the hallway and they can watch him go in and out of these patient rooms and he spends five minutes in each patient room no stethoscope he just goes in for five minutes and walks out and walks into another patient room and walks out five minutes later. And then he goes, and I saw, I would see his chart notes the next day, and he was billing for a 30-minute visit when he mm-hmm. actually only saw the patient for five minutes, and he was saying that he did these certain things on a physical exam, which required a stethoscope. Mm-hmm. And I was like, he didn't do that either. And he did this day after day after day after day and I told legal I says you need to stop that that is billing fraud right, right and they finally had to go in and you know put a stop to it but it was like they were very reluctant to do that I was like he is putting this university at risk for medical malpractice he is putting this university at risk for health care fraud for billing fraud is that really what you want to stand for and only when they saw it in those kinds of you know that's sort of scenario that they finally went okay we'll take care of it yeah but it was reluctance on their part so I'm just wondering what's causing this like I think you know I know that a lot of doctor friends of mine have just you know when they get older they just quit the practice of medicine because Medicare doesn't reimburse them enough and then of course if medicine if Medicare doesn't cover something for example for elderly people then um then their supplemental won't cover it either. And um, mm-hmm. and so, and maybe they don't get enough reimbursed. You know, Medicare doesn't exactly pay these doctors quite enough to. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, is that part of it that it's driving them to say that they're there for 30 minutes when they go in for five? Because I know, you know, I'm on Medicare now, and I just know that I don't get the time um, that I used to get when I was on just regular, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, but I think even the insurance companies are are making it really hard. They're not reimbursing these doctors enough. Do you think that's part of it that they're just not able to make a living because of it? No, I mean physicians are able to make a living for what they do, but I think at least with my next door neighbor who now is back in New York State. Um, But prior to her moving, she told me about one of her um, best friends who had gotten a divorce from her physician husband because her best friend said 
he was double billing his patients mm. for his hand surgery. And I was like, he was doing what? She said, yeah, he would bill under this code and then he'd bill that same patient under this other code and it would be for the same procedure and then he would collect double the, the money. Oh. And I was like, "How? what's going on there? And he was finally caught um, by the Colorado State Attorney General because he was doing Medicaid fraud on top of everything else. So the Attorney General here got a hold of him and put a stop to him. They put him into the medical board saying that he was fraud and he, you know, his license was revoked from Colorado. He moved to Pennsylvania and did the same thing and mm. finally was caught in Pennsylvania. Then he moved to New York State and did the same thing in New York State. He was finally caught in New York State and he was finally put in prison at that point in time. But his license had been revoked twice, wow. Colorado and Pennsylvania, before he went to New York State. I can't believe they didn't get those kind of records from the other state before they hired him. You know? Well, I, I'm surprised too, but that was a personal example that even my next-door neighbor knew about, and I was like, whoa, this is much yeah. more prevalent than I think it was. But right. physicians, you know, they go through med school, and it's, and it's tough getting through med school. It's expensive and too, they, you know. It's very expensive, right. And it's very tough getting through med school. And so they, they look on their friends and they go, here's all their friends who, have, you know, they're out there, they're having a family, they're employed, they're, you know, doing a middle income type of a thing. And they're just getting out of med school and starting their residency and they're not earning a whole lot being a resident. So for many of them, they think that, well, this is due to me because mm -hmm. I need to make up for the seven years that I was doing my med school and my residency, I need to make up for those monies that I didn't earn. So some of them feel like I'm due this money. And so I'm going to do it whether, you know, anyone cares about it or not. And the other part of the problem is that medicine has a 75% of all workplace violence and workplace bullying huh. happens in medicine. Wow. And because you're in a very stressful scenario, you're under workplace violence, people are bullying you all the time, people are disrespecting you, people are looking down upon you, people are, you know, giving you nasty feedback. Sometimes patients are even, you know, throwing things at you and beating you up. And there's been episodes in the ER where nurses and physicians have been stabbed or killed. Oh. Um they just feel like, well, this is due to me because I'm in a, you know, somewhat High violent scenario. Yeah. Uh -huh. My 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 friends are committing suicide because they can't handle it anymore because there's one physician who dies every day from suicide in the U.S. Wow. Um, so it's this scenario of it's due me because I went through seven years of additional training that my friends didn't go through. It's due me because I'm going to get them back for all their bullying and their, you know, beating me up and berating me and disrespecting me and everything else. So I'm going to do this to them instead. And so they go out and they commit fraud. Mm, terrible. Well, it's not every doctor. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of ethical doctors out there, but it's the bad ones that give them a terrible reputation. And I think, you know, I think it's, I think it's tough. I think it's a tough mm -hmm. situation. Now, so you were talking about a case that, can you talk about the case that, that you've been involved with in Denver? 
Are you? Well, there's two cases. Can you? <laughs> Which one do you want me to talk no. about? Uh, how about talking about both of there's them? There's one with the. Oh, all right. Well, the one case that I went to the FBI about was a private physician. He was an internist, and he had me come out for an interview. And I thought I met him. I spent four hours being interviewed just by him. And I thought, boy, this is really unusual. You know, most interviews that I would have would last like maybe a half an hour with a physician or 45 minutes, but never four hours. Right. So I was just like totally impressed with the fact that he was spending four hours with me. And he was talking all about the public health he was doing. And he was, he was feeding my public health background. And I was just kind of like, oh, this is really wonderful. He's really into community public health. And right. so I was very impressed with him. And the next day he wanted me to go into his office and meet his office staff, which meant that I met a his office manager who was about 25, 26, his front office staff who was about the same age. Um, he also had an MA who worked in the office who had a background of being a paramedic. And then he had this relatively new nurse practitioner. And I say that because this guy had been out for nine months being an MP. And until you've been out for two years in the state of Colorado, nurse practitioners are not allowed to sign prescriptions. That is the nursing rule within the nursing board. Right. All MPs cannot sign a script until they've been out practicing full-time for two full years. They have to be under the mentorship of a physician. They have to, every patient they see, they have to pass that by the physician and present it to the physician. And then the physician decides what meds that patient goes on, and he signs the prescription. That is the rule and the law for the nursing board for the first two years. Right. This nurse practitioner was out for nine months, the physician that I had interviewed with the day before <clears throat> was not in the office when I was in the office the next day. What he does is he would come into the office at 7 o'clock and he would leave at 11.30 every single day. Huh. During that four-hour time period, because he'd come in at 7, get his coffee, and get ready to start seeing patients at 7.30. So he saw patients for a total of four hours per day. During that four-hour time period, he would see 64 patients. Oh, my goodness. Meaning <laughs> he saw each patient for three minutes. Oh, my goodness. He, <laughs> he had the scribe with him who would go in, and the scribe would, you know, basically have this uh, chart note that he would have a couple of blanks that, that he would go down the chart note, fill in the blanks, and then once the physician left during the afternoon, the scribe would go up and pull up that patient chart and fill in those blanks, and then he would sign the physician's name to the bottom of the chart note. Mm. The billing that the physician was doing, he was billing out at a 214, which means that he certified that he saw that patient for 25 to 30 minutes. Mm. Every single patient, 64 patients, he certified, I saw this patient for... 25 to 30 minutes, and I discussed at least these three to four problems. Oh, my goodness. Well, you can't do that in three minutes. I mean, that's impossible. Right. Um, and he did that five days a week. So then 
at the, when he left at 11.30, the MP showed up at about 1 to start seeing patients. And I was there from 1 until 6, I think, that day. Um, the office manager, I asked her, I says, well, can you show me, you know, what's the typical procedure? How do you go about, you know, checking patients in and this kind of thing? And she showed me a bunch of stuff. But then she says, I don't know how to get this patient portal closed down. And I was like, well, what's wrong with patient portal? Patient portals are where patients have access to their medical chart notes and to their diagnostics and to their pharmaceutical meds that they're on. Basically, they have access to their whole patient chart. Right. And she says, "I I have to get this patient portal closed down. And I was like, what's going on? She says, patients are calling up all the time. She says, it's like nonstop. And they're telling us that this chart note is wrong and that this didn't happen when they came in to be seen and that this chart note billing is wrong and I don't know what to do about it. And I was like, oh, how old are you? And, you know, she told me and I was like, okay, you don't have any experience with working with legal. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't saying that. Right. But she was showing me basically that the patient said, He wasn't doing what he was saying that he was doing on the chart note. The office manager was saying that there was a problem with the chart notes. Mm. Here's a scribe who was just filling in, you know, blanks on the chart note and then signing his name to him, which was wrong. Oh, my goodness. Then I had, I interviewed with the nurse practitioner and the nurse practitioner told me, oh, well, he's not here in the afternoon. And so I'm seeing patients, you know, by myself and uh, when I need to get a prescription, I just print it off on the printer and I sign his name. Oh, my and goodness. Like, That's <laughs> wrong. And then 30% of his patient population needed to get narcotics every single month. So the MP was also doing narcotic fraud by signing <sighs> the physician's name to a script that he was just printing off on the printer. And he was signing his name, you know, the physician's name. But it was the MP who was signing the physician's name. You must have been in total shock. So then I went, okay, (laughs) so there's fraud going on in regards to the billing. There's fraud going on in regards to the DEA scripts. There's fraud going on in regards to the prescriptive, the prescriptive, you know, scripts. So not only was he committing fraud with the MP, the MP, I says, well, is this normally how you do it? And he says, well, I just thought that this was how you did it. I thought all MPs did it this way because we have, you know, two years before we actually get our own prescriptive privileges. So I just thought all MPs did it this way. And I was like, no, you're wrong about that. He pulled out a file drawer, um, those used, those big metal file drawers. Right, right. And he pulled out the file drawer and in the file drawer, were these rubber band groups of little two by three cards from which the scribe had used to put down just a word. This is the word that I'm going to fill in for this empty space on the chart. This is the word I'm going to fill in for this empty space on the chart. And he would probably have like five to eight words written on this little two by three card for each one of the patients. And he had saved all of those cards for the last 10 years is what I was told. Hmm. And I went, so there's at least 10 years worth of fraud going on in this office that I see right here in front of me. And so, so I went home that evening yeah. and I was just like, oh, great. Where do I even start with this? 
Yeah. So I had to put the fraud notice in with the DEA and tell them what was going on. And they have a website that you can get into and actually tell them this is fraud and this is why it's fraud. So I gave them all that information. The next day I had to write a three-page detail. Here's what happened. Here was my interview. Here's what the office manager said. Here's what the MP said. Here's how they were committing all the fraud. Here's what you can look at, this kind of stuff. And then I sent that into the FBI. They got a hold of me within like two weeks, and they said, we want a very thorough interview. And I went, okay. So they came out to where I was working, and they spent an hour and a half to two hours interviewing me, going over all the details. You know, making sure that I hadn't missed something or that I, you know, didn't tell them something that was different than what I'd said in my letter. Um, And at that point in time, they said, this will go to the DOJ and once they show up in town, we, this will, you know, go into an indictment and that kind of stuff. And I said, great. So I have been in contact with the FBI here. I've actually um, sent them an email twice saying, when is the DOJ showing up? And they don't know when the DOJ is showing up, but I have been uh, told that there is an indictment on this case. So was that, how long has that been going on? Um, Based on what the MP showed me in that files were, it had been going on for at least 10 years. Yeah, but I mean, when, how long has it been since you reported that to the DOJ or to the uh, Three years ago. Three years ago, and nothing has happened. Meanwhile. Not yet, thank you. They haven't yeah. showed up in town yet. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And there, in this case, is at least a $30 million fraud case. Right. It's not a small case. And what was the other case that you were telling me about? Well, the other case is the university, and I had I was working in a division where they were cleaning the division out. Um, they had gotten rid of a physician. They had gotten rid of an RN, and they were... You know, they thought that they were finally in the clear. They had been told to go through some uh, workplace relationship training, which we did go through that. And they thought, therefore, they would get everything taken care of and, you know, it would calm down. And I was working with the um, senior manager of human resources there saying, uh, it's not cleaned out. You've got more cleaning to do. And here's what. Here's what's going on. And so finally, they sent me to the ethics committee and to legal, and I sat down with legal for an hour and an hour and a half, or close, maybe close to two hours, and I gave them an eight-page detailed, single-spaced memo saying, "Here are the problems. Here's what's going on. You need to take care of this particular physician who is doing billing fraud." They they were aware that he was doing billing fraud before I even met with legal because they had taken, he was seeing patients, but he was seeing 36 patients in a day, which you can't be seeing in this particular division. I mean, it was too much to, to say that he would have seen that kind of patient load. So they cut and, his and patient load you, in half I mean, down to 18. You know, aside from fraud, which is horrible, what about the patients, you know, that they're not getting the care to be properly diagnosed? They're not getting the kind of, um, you know, help that they need? How can you diagnose someone or help somebody in three minutes? You don't even get to hear well, what's going on. So it's it's not, it's it's fraud, yes, but it's worse than that. It's fraud and really poor treatment of patients, 
which I'm sure that Correct. bothered you too. Well, I mean, you're you're looking at medical malpractice at that point in yes, time. Yes, yeah. And the physician that I took to legal, to university legal, I said, he has put this university at risk at least twice in the last month for medical malpractice because of his lack of detail and his lack of even caring about the patients. Sharon, um, we have just patient, about another minute left. Um, I just wanted you to give us, if someone is in the audience right now and they think that um, that maybe something is happening that shouldn't, like if they go in and they look at their medical records in the portal and they see something, what should they do? Just give us just a quick overview of if you suspect fraud from your uh, physician or the you know, the university where you go for medical care, what should you do? Well, it's according to what insurance plan they have. Okay, If so, they have Medicare, yeah. they need to go to a website, which is www.stopmedicarefraud.gov. Okay. If they have private health insurance, they need to contact their private health insurance and advise them that fraud has been committed on their account and have it pursued at that point in time. If they think that they are getting fraudulent medications or opiates that they don't need or don't use or, you know, it's just being, there's something really wrong about it, they need to go to www.dea.gov, which is the um, federal website that takes care of opiates. Okay, well, we are just out of time, so... Thank you so much. I'm just going to give your website, strengtheningyourfaith.com, and people can t- contact you there. So thank you for all of your high ethics and all the great work that you're doing. So we will talk to you again, Sharon Barrich. You take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.